Good morning, good afternoon, whatever time of day it is that you are listening, as has become customary. Thank you very, very much for listening. The day today is, what is today? January 30th, year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome to another episode of Shoot the J. Now, a little bit of an unorthodox uh, intro here. I want to ask a question. Someone, one of my listeners, please let me know. Um, when I'm sneezing, um, how fast is that happening? Like, what's the speed of like, is it, am I sneezing at like the speed of like, you know what, never mind. Someone, someone who's listening understands what I'm asking. Somebody will let me know. Anyways, basketball. This is an NBA centric podcast with an emphasis on the Detroit Pistons. And I feel like in past episodes, I've seldom talked about the Pistons. So let's do that a little bit right here. If you're a Pistons fan and you've been watching these last few games these last few weeks, not only is the season over, but you're noticing a trend. And that trend is that Sekou Dumbuya isn't really playing that much anymore. And you're probably wondering why is that? If we're going to be losing, which we are, you should probably be losing with your youngest player, your future, on the floor. Let him have that experience. I mean, he's going from playing 35 minutes a game to last night uh, in Brooklyn on national television, he played eight minutes. So what in the world is happening? Prior to that, I believe he played 35. I think before that was like 18. So he's, you know, he's generally kind of hitting the like 20 to 25 range since two weeks ago in Boston when he had 24 points. And that was the last time that Sekou played well, because after that, he was 10 of 13 in Boston. And that was on the 15th of January. Today is the 30th. This was two weeks ago. Since then, Sekou has gone one of eight. 2 of 7, 1 of 4, 2 of 4, 0 of 5, 3 of 7, and 0 for 2. So you're wondering why Sekou isn't playing. Now, there are two sides to this coin, and let me present the first one, which is he's playing very bad. On offense, he's out of position. No, he's not given. You know what? I'll just kind of blend them together because I feel like that'll make most people uh, happy. Most people are saying, well, he's not given the opportunity. They're not running sets for Seku. Well, it's really hard to run sets for Seku when he clearly isn't understanding where he's supposed to be on the floor. He has a high basketball IQ when he's in transition and when he's uh, when he's defending. In transition, his spacing is well. He knows where to find the soft spot on the floor. Defensively, I mean, he's just a, he's a quality defender, and he just turned 19 years old. He's only 19. Seku is already a really a really solid defender. You'll sell you'll seldom see him make a mistake on defense unless it's in sort of like a it's just a bad foul. Uh, the, his fouling was, has been the issue, and he's actually cut down on that uh, recently. I think he had four fouls against Cleveland. That game doesn't count, and I'll address that very shortly. But prior to that, he was only fouling, I think, a maximum of like two times per game. And before that, he was like four or five or even fouling out. I think he fouled out against the Lakers. Um, so Seku's not playing because he's not playing well. He's not capitalizing on the opportunities that he is given, which is, an, which is infrequent. If, you're, if, you, if you look at his, uh, his, his shot chart, no, he's not getting that many shots. The volume isn't there. They really aren't paying attention to him, and that's the part that's frustrating, and that's where I do empathize with fans because it really does suck that when, they, when they're in transition and Seku's wide open on the break, no one's throwing him lobs. No one's kicking it out to him on the wing. And I think that hurts his confidence. And I think you can definitely correlate that to when he is given an open look or, you know, when he is putting the ball on the floor and going to the basket. Uh, it it kind of hurts his confidence a little bit. He's just not making his shots. And at some point you have to sort of say, okay, you're sort of hurting the team right now. Um, I know in a, in a lot of those games, he's finishing like minus 12 or minus 8. Or like minus 10, like he's not finishing positively. And a lot of that, you know, plus minus is a really meticulous thing to look at uh, as for an individual player and say, you were the reason that we were bad. But he's contributing to that. 
So I get why he's not playing. I know Pistons fans are going to be mad. Everyone's all up in arms on Twitter. Like, why isn't Seku in the game? It's because he's not doing anything productive. When he is given those opportunities, you have to capitalize on them. You got to show me something. You got to show me that you deserve to still be on the floor because although Dwayne Casey's biggest thing is like effort and defensive performance, at the end of the day, you also have to capitalize on your offensive opportunities. And right now, Sekou's not doing that. Another reason is because he's just not good at passing. Sekou is not a good passer at all. I think his career high in assists is like two. He hasn't had an assist in four of his last five games, I think. So, and when you're only playing eight minutes a game like he did last night in Brooklyn, that's pretty tough. But you get what I'm saying. If you're watching, Sekou kind of gets the ball and he'll either defer to somebody else to finish the set or he'll just put the ball on the floor, go to the basket, or he'll, you know, he'll just pull up from three, which is fine. I'm not mad about that, but you have to be a more crafty passer. Your, 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 your core vision has to be there, like, just a little bit. So if Seku starts playing better, then he'll see more minutes. And if he goes down to Grand Rapids, I don't think you should be that mad about it. I think you should be completely fine with that. And you're going to say it's a bad look? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Shut up. If, if our 19-year-old rookie... I don't know what you were expecting from him that he puts up 24 in Boston and now he's the second coming of Christ. No, he's like he's 19 years old. We weren't even expecting him to start one game this season. And now all of a sudden, Pistons fans are so spoiled that Seku starts for two weeks. And all of a sudden, anytime he does something, anytime Dwayne Casey pulls him out of the game, it's outside of the realm of possibility. And it's the worst thing that could have ever happened to this team. It's the most infuriating thing in the world. Seku is not a perfect product. And that's something that I feel like is all of a sudden lost on a lot of people when a month ago he wasn't playing. And now that he is... We're just expecting that he's going to be playing 35 minutes is going to get every look in the world. Now, you're probably going to say, well, it would be nice if he got one look. I actually completely agree with you. You're not wrong about that. But again, it's capitalizing on the opportunities that you do get, which will not just build confidence for him, but it will build confidence that people can, they feel like they can pass to him because he'll make something happen. And on offense, if he's putting the ball on the floor, sometimes he's just drawing charges. Sometimes he's just traveling. He still has to figure the game out the way that it's played at an NBA level. He's 19 years old. Relax. He'll get there, folks. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is uh, I owe the Cleveland Cavaliers an apology. Okay? I've spent, I think, the last, the last three episodes, every single episode, I have at some point said something negative about the Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, right now, I'm actually going to amend some of that. My biggest thing with them, and I'm not going to regurgitate all of it, is the Cleveland Cavaliers don't really play offense at all. Like, they they just run high pick and rolls, and they have two ball-dominant guards, and they isolate. If you've been listening to what I've said about them, this isn't new. And their offense just just doesn't make sense. But they play the Pistons the other night. And I'm watching this game, and I'm excited because I love watching chaos. That's what I root for more often than not. And that's what the Cavs are. So that's why sometimes you'll enjoy watching them because it's just a bunch of nonsense. But, man. Was that a ball game or what? Now, I tell you something. It's, it's, it's a train wreck of a season, and if, 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 you, if you hadn't arrived to the point that the Pistons season was over, you certainly did this last weekend when they dropped two consecutive games, well, three consecutive games, to the Nets, the Grizzlies, and then the Cavs, all at home. And the Cavs one is the one that hurt the most because you can, you can live with losing to the Nets. They're a, a playoff team, a fringe playoff team as it stands, but they're going to get in there. You're okay with losing to the Grizzlies just because they've been on fire the last 30 days and they have John Morant. Rookie of the Year. Their roster is really solid. And they have such a, a unique dynamic where it's like, in an individual quarter, a different player is going to take over. It's bizarre. Like, Dylan Brooks will be the first. John Morant will be the fourth. And then every, everywhere else, you just fill in the blanks. It's always somebody different. And it, it feels like it's not somebody consistently throughout the game. The, the, the Grizzlies have it uh, so that a different guy takes over every quarter. And I love it. 
And I don't know if that's intentional, but it's really fun to watch. It's actually, I don't have that much fun watching it, and it, I should. Like, everything about the Grizzlies, I should have fun watching them. They're explosive on offense, and they, they're, you know, they're fine defensively. I should have more fun watching them, and it just doesn't do it for me. And I sincerely have no idea why, because they have so many, so many, uh, I don't want to say shot creators, but guys that can knock down shots. And Valanchunas, I'm glad that he's actually, like, sweet there. Now imagine if they had Andre Iguodala, which is a whole different conversation. Which, I mean, they do, but you know what I mean. But anyways, the Cleveland Cavaliers, you saw a team, and I said this in my recap, as far as I'm concerned, played the best game that they've played since Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals. I mean, they came out and they flipped a switch that I haven't seen personally from the Cavs this season. And I don't think a lot of people have. Where they're distributing the ball. I mean, even now you, you did see if you look at the if you look at the box score, Darius Garland was absolutely atrocious. Uh, if memory serves, he shot like thirty percent from the field. He was like three of ten, only had six points in twenty five minutes. He did have four assists though, and Colin Sexton had five assists. I mean, that that's incredible. Neither of them had steals, but conversely, I actually think that they turned the ball over a considerable amount. I think they had seven or eight turnovers combined. I believe Colin Sexton had the brunt of those. It's because he played marginally more minutes. I think he played upwards of 40 minutes. Darius Garland only played 25. But Colin Sexton shot 52.5% from the field. Uh, he wasn't shooting threes. He wasn't jacking things up. He, he's going, he's going mid-range. He's trying to get to the basket. It was, like, efficient. He was even getting to the free throw line a few times. It was bizarre. And obviously, Kevin Love was Kevin Love. Uh, he was, like, 6 of 8 from 3. I think he gave the Pistons seven or eight rebounds. Uh, he was plus 18, and he only played 24 minutes. So he was almost, I think he had 20 points in 24 minutes. So he was almost up to a point a minute. So the Cleveland Cavaliers played a game. I mean, they're, they're, what was insane about it was you're seeing the Cavs pass the ball three or four times before they try to score. And he, it was three, four, or even sometimes five passes before they're like, okay, let's generate a look like through these passes instead of just, let's just figure it out. Let's just get in a half-court setting and just kind of go from there. Like, there were design sets. They were actually cutting. Uh, they were use, utilizing backdoor cuts. They were using not just pick and roll. I mean, it was, they were using double screens. It was miraculous. And I was I think it caught the Pistons off guard because it certainly caught me off guard. How good the Cavs were that night. So congratulations to the Cavs. You guys still stink, but it's whatever. Um, I do want to address Jetty Osman, and this is actually going to segue into the next segment. I asked you guys on Twitter for your questions. Um, uh, <laughs> I got some interesting ones. I'll, I'll, I'll answer them uh, appropriately or accordingly, rather, the ones that I think are actually, you know, um, the ones that I haven't been asked a hundred million times. Aaron Burkhart, I got to show him some love, um, asked, is Jetty Osman the future of the NBA? Now, I'm... Highly critical of Jetty. I always have been. I think he kind of stinks. I think he does everything fine. I think he shoots the ball well. He's shooting 39% from three this season on par with like Joe Harris. And you, I mean, Joe Harris is having a down year. So do with that what you will. I, he doesn't rebound the, the ball particularly well. He doesn't distribute the ball particularly well. I think he's an average defender. From a scoring standpoint, I think he can impose his will on players who have been in the league two years or less. I think he's perfectly fine. And against the Pistons the other night, he had seven points in 23 minutes. And he was efficient. He shot the ball at 43%. He was plus 19. He actually did have uh, five rebounds, four assists. Only turned the ball over once and did have a steal, which kind of contradicts literally everything that I just said. But it's the Pistons, so it doesn't count. When you're playing, you know, like Bruce Brown uh, defensively, you know what I mean? So, um... 
with Jetty, if you look at his game log, he'll have a night where he goes for 22, and then he'll have a night where he goes for four. And they'll be in consecutive games. And it's been, and what's insane is I think it was against the Lakers one night, he has 21. I think it was literally the exact numbers that I just said, basically. It was against the Lakers, he had 21. And then, like, the next night against Memphis, he had four. And it was, like, the same amount of minutes. It's just the most egregious thing of all time where it's like, you should be popping off against, like, that should be flipped. Jetty just doesn't make any sense. He's just the most inconsistent. Uh, he's just, a, like, I don't want to say he's, I, I said this about Thon Maker. I said this about the Pistons last night. I don't want to say he's a guy who, when he's on the floor uh, for 25 minutes, basketball is just being played in his general vicinity. Again, I, I, I think he can shoot the ball well from three. Like, he's a guy where if you're, if you're on a pick and roll and, you know, the, the roll option's not there, the, the shot's not there, he's a guy that you can kick it out to and feel confident that he's going to make the shot. And I, like, I, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't know where he fits well. I don't know if he's good in, like, Philadelphia. Well, actually, I think that's the conversation that actually Aaron and I have actually had that I think Jetty would be would fit well in Philadelphia. We're, uh, you know, a system where he just doesn't have to be a guy who's, and he's only averaging, I think, 11 points per game this year, so it's nothing outstanding, nothing superb. But is that almost just, like, forcing uh, too much on him? Because that, that's kind of what I mean, is I, I don't want Jetty to be in a system where he's the guy. Like, he's one of, like, the top three scoring options. And I don't even know if he's quite that in Cleveland, would you say he's probably top four? You might even say he's top five, depending on where you put Tristan Thompson, because it's going to be probably Con Sexton, Kevin Love, Darius Garland, and then either Tristan Thompson or or Jetty Osman, right? So I don't even know I, what what option. I think you don't even want him to be in that top five. I think you want Jetty as like a guy who's your sixth man. If again, even if that just a guy who's in your second unit, a guy who just comes off of your bench, and his volume's actually down. I think he's taking two less shots uh, this season. Uh, per game than he did last year. He took 11 last year. I think he's just upwards of nine this year. Do I think Jetty's the future? No. And Aaron knows that. I just, I just, I don't, I, there's something about Jetty. And I, I, I have spent way too much time talking about Jetty Osman, like uh, more time than I think I ever have in my entire life. So I think that I'm probably good for like the next month. Um, next question. Where do Drummond and Rose go? See, this is one of the questions that I've answered like a hundred million times. Maybe if I just answer it here, then I'll never be asked it. But uh, I think I say that every single time. Where are they going to go? Honestly, man, uh, I if I had to speculate, Rose isn't going to go anywhere. Don't be surprised if Andre doesn't go anywhere. But if Andre goes anywhere, it'll be just some poverty franchise like the Knicks. Or, um, you know, I thought, I thought Dallas would have been a good fit for them. Some people still think Charlotte's in the mix. I don't think Boston's in there anymore. Um, the Knicks were pulled out, but then Woj said that they're still interested. So the market's stagnant on him. So don't be surprised if, if Andre Drummond's not moved. And this question I do quite like. Which of these players are the most likely to be on the Pistons next season? And which would I personally prefer? Zaire Smith, Kyle Kuzma, Fred Van Vliet, Andre Drummond, Derek Rose. It's difficult to put Andre Drummond and Derek Rose in there. I don't think Andre Drummond will be a Piston next season, so we can rule him out. I don't think Zaire Smith is going to be a Piston next season. We can rule him out. So it comes down to Kuzma, who, again, I don't think he's going to be a Piston. So it really just comes down to Fred Van Vliet or Derek Rose. Which one of those guys would I rather have? Well, it's difficult because if you land Fred Van Vliet, uh, it's probably going to be a gross overpay 
to pry him away from Toronto because I believe it's a, he's a, he'll be a restricted free agent so they can just match whatever Detroit offers him. So whatever you pay him, it's going to be kind of cringy. You're going to look at it and say, wow. And then in just in, in, in classic Detroit fashion, he's just going to burn out and be terrible, which I hope wouldn't happen. But it's just like you hear that, like that plays. I wouldn't be surprised. Sounds about right. Or he'll just have some cataclysmic injury, which I don't want to wish that on him. So I take that back, actually. So it comes down to Fred Van Vliet or Derrick Rose. You already have Derrick Rose uh, next year for $7.6 million. I'm just going to say for both of those answers, who do I think it'll be? Derrick Rose. Who do I want it to be? Derrick Rose. I mean, it, it, it'd almost be a, it'd be a tragic misfire not to trade him because his value is at like an all-time high. Well, not an all-time high, but in a five-year high. Um, it would be difficult not to trade him, but I think there are so many variables that go into it that I just don't know how. It's just such a delicate process. So I'm just going to say Derrick Rose for both of those. What do you get for Langston Galloway and Markeith Morris if they're even tradable? I think you could legitimately get a protected like 2021 first for Markeith Morris, but I don't know how plausible that is. I think for both of them, you're looking at a guy who is in there to fill salary and... Um, maybe a second-round pick or two for both of them. I think one of those picks would be for this year, and another one of them would just be a future. I think that can probably be applied to both of them. Because if Langston was playing the way that he was prior to, to, to December 15th, he's a first-round pick, and it's not even a question. But he's been slumping since then. Well, he'll, he's back to regular Langston. Well, he'll be a flamethrower some nights. He'll go like 7 of 10 from deep, and then other nights he'll go like 1 of 8. And it's just kind of how Langston's been. Which is fine, you know, it's whatever, who cares? We're not pushing for the playoffs, I don't really mind. Um, and then Markeith, he was like 7-9 last night, had 15 points. He's been really quality recently. So that's why I think with Markeith, I think you may be able to see them get a protected first. Next question from Jeff. With how bad the slam dunk contest has been lately, minus Levine and Gordon, shouldn't the skills or the three-point contest be the main event uh, at All-Star Weekend? You know, I think this has sort of just been the sentiment that's been shared league-wide, uh, yes, it probably should be. And I, I remember in, uh, this was sort of the, again, this is like the consensus, Aaron Gordon versus Zach Levine round one was sort of like a, that was, I feel like, the year that everybody really started to get on board with the, let's just make it the three-point contest. That's all that anybody cares about. And then that slam dunk contest happened, and everyone was like, never mind. The slam dunk contest is freaking awesome. It's incredible. Um, and then was it the next year? I think they tried round two and like Aaron Gordon brought out a drone and like they were both just bad or maybe Levine wasn't there. Was that when he tore his ACL? I know Aaron Gordon was there and it was just bad and nobody really enjoyed it at all. And everyone was like, okay, no, we should just do the three point contest again. Last year was fine with, with Diallo winning, but I was more engulfed in the three point contest because I was rooting for Joe Harris. So no, I don't think it should be the skills competition. I wish they would bring that competition back where it was like a former player, a current player, and like a WNBA player, and they had to hit like a layup, a free throw, a three-pointer, and a half-court shot. It was something like that, right? I think you guys probably remember that. I wish they would bring that back. I always thought that was really fun. But I do think that the three-point contest should probably overtake the uh, dunk contest. I don't know if that'll ever happen, though. This is another question, uh, two questions, actually, that I really, really like. And this is for Bucks fans, so listen up. Which team is better, the 2018-19 Bucks or the current version, the 
2020 Milwaukee Bucks. Which one is better? I don't even, this is going to sound rude. I actually think that's a dumb question only because, but I love the question. I think it's dumb only because it's like, just look on paper. You just watch the games. I mean, it's, it's, it's genuinely insane that every conceivable metric is up from last season. And it's not even just with the team. Giannis's numbers are up. And Chris Middleton just had 51. It's remarkable to see even their point differential, which I believe right now is around 12.8, which, if memory serves, is the highest in the history of modern basketball since it was a recorded statistic. The, 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 the 73 and 9 Warriors, I think, were around uh, like 10.8, and the 96 Bulls were somewhere in the 11s. So it's the highest point differential in the history of the NBA, and somebody can fact check me on that. I won't be mad. Every conceivable metric shows that this Bucks team is better. And just look at the win-loss record. Now, I will concede that I'm pretty sure they have like the easiest schedule, not just in the NBA, but in the history of basketball. I think that's a real thing that I saw the other day. Didn't look into it too much. So you kind of got to take it with it, but I'm not going to be mad about it. It's like people trying to put an asterisk next to, well, they scored 88 and a half and broke the NBA record for most points in a single half, but it was against the Washington Wizards who have a historically bad defense. Shut up. It doesn't matter. It's, there's no asterisk next to that. I'm not going to punish the Milwaukee Bucks for playing who's on their schedule. I should expect that they're going to beat up on the Washington Wizards, but if they're going to beat up on them so bad that they break an NBA record, why am I going to fault them for that? That's not their fault. Don't put an asterisk next to it just because you're upset that they're not the Lakers. So dumb. As a Bucks fan, this is the next question. As a Bucks fan, should I be worried about any Eastern Conference trade movement from other quote-unquote contending teams? Love this question. Love, love, love it. And the answer is a flat no. There's not a doubt in my mind that, I mean, I mean unless it's like the Sixers and they get more shooting, like a Jetty Osman. I don't know. Because even if they traded for, like, Derrick Rose, I don't think that helps the Sixers nearly as much as they think that it will. Because they already have this post-dominant team. They have the most post-ups, I think, in the NBA. If not, they're, like, top five. Why would you then throw in a guy? Yeah, Derrick Rose can, can, can let it fly from the perimeter. He can create a shot, like, 17 feet away from the basket. But he thrives around the rim. I don't understand why they would want to add that in there. Ben Simmons, unless Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are part of the trade, which is a joke, I don't see how that would help the Sixers. If it's Miami, who I've said this before, I don't think Miami can make a trade that will transcend their roster into something that it already isn't, make them marginally better. They can't do that without completely decimating their depth. I just don't see how that happens. And that's why I don't pay any mind to these Drew Holiday rumors where there are these Gary Harris rumors. I think maybe they could land Gary Harris. I don't think they could. But I know for a fact they couldn't land Drew Holiday. These guys where their contracts are so large that the Heat, their assets won't be able to equate uh, in a way that doesn't just completely obliterate uh, what they've built. So I think if you're Miami, you're standing pat unless it's just some, you know, uh, trim around the edges. I don't think even if you're Boston, if you go after an actual center that isn't Daniel Tice, who I actually really like, he's flat out hustles, or Ennis Cantor. I think Boston's going to want to try to get a center that can better combat Joel Embiid, and I think that's sort of the consensus. I don't think that's going to be Andre Drummond. So I'm going to assume they're probably out of the mix as well. I think I said that, though. I don't think that there are any teams 
that are going to be able to stop the Milwaukee Bucks from doing the inevitable, which is winning the Eastern Conference and likely winning the NBA Finals. I would be more worried as a Bucks fan. I would pay more attention to the West. I would pay more attention to see what moves are made out there. And this has sort of been the, the reports that have been coming out that there, this isn't going to be a superstar-oriented trade deadline. You're not going to see any huge names change in markets. This is going to be sort of like what I said with the Heat. Just trim around the just, – just trying to, to shape your roster into something that makes you a little bit better. Just a little bit better, which is fine. It's boring, but it's fine. It just makes for a better product. It's fine. I would pay more attention to see – do the Clippers add more size? Because with the Lakers, I think the Bucks combat them really well, as you saw, what, a month and a half ago when they played? It was just, just about a month ago. Yeah, it was about a month and a half ago. They combat the Lakers well enough that the Lakers can't get any bigger. And I don't know how much more shooting they can add. I think they could add some scoring if they wanted Derrick Rose, but I don't see that happening. I'd pay more attention to, I don't even want to say Denver, because that's not going to be a real threat in longevity. Oh, I really hope that one doesn't come back on me. I don't think it will. I'll be fine. I don't know that there are any teams in the East that are really going to come close to touching the Bucks. Maybe if Toronto does something outstanding, which I don't think that they will. But alrighty, folks, if you made it this far, genuinely from the bottom of my heart, thank you very, very much. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode of Shoot the J. As is always, uh, be sure to let me know your questions, concerns, uh, anything that you want, any future guests. Just let me know what you guys want to hear from this show, and I will make it happen. I will catch you guys in the next one.